you please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, the second chapter. I'd like to read the final verse and the first two verses of chapter 4. I'd like to read these verses slowly and deliberately. I would like us to reflect on them as we hear them. I almost feel that having read these verses, the best thing I could do would be to sit down and for us to spend the remainder of our time pondering what we read here. I'll assume that you know at least something of the context into which and out of which Paul speaks. For we are not like so many peddlers, that is, adulterators, waterers down of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. If someone were to ask you tonight, what do you think about the present state of evangelical Christianity, not only in this country, but throughout the Western world in particular, what would your answer be? What do you think is the present state of evangelical Christianity? I think for myself that evangelical Christianity is in a state of deep, deep crisis. It is in a crisis of identity, and that crisis includes the world of mission. Mission is not a separate entity. It belongs to the very heart and core of God's purpose for this world. And the world of missions cannot separate itself from or divorce itself from or isolate itself from the crisis of identity that is convulsing, I think, the very nature and character of what was once biblical evangelical Christianity. Thirty years ago, David Wells gave an answer to the reason why evangelical Christianity was in a state of crisis, and he spoke these words, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is, now how would you complete the sentence? The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. David Wells wrote those words over 30 years ago. And I fear that evangelical Christianity, with honorable exceptions, has found itself, almost unbeknown to itself, becoming seduced by the world that it's seeking to win for Christ. 
The idea of relevance has become something of a, a mantra within evangelical Christianity. We need to be relevant. And this passion for relevance, which of course in its origin is a biblical and righteous passion, this passion for relevance has become an all-embracing paradigm that has skewed almost everything, I think, in evangelical Christianity out of kilter. God's transgenerationally true word is often sidelined and replaced by evangelical cultural gurus telling the church how to be meaningful and relevant in a world that has abandoned Christian truth. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am all for relevance. I want the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to come with meaning, conviction, and power to sin-blinded, Satan-deceived, hell-bound men, women, boys, and girls. I long for that. But here is the thing that so often is missed today. The gospel is natively relevant. You don't need to make it relevant. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. I don't mean that we are not to work hard at commending it, presenting it, proclaiming it, declaring it, pressing it upon men and women with urgency and thought and care. But the gospel is natively relevant. You don't make it relevant by its very nature as the gospel of God to you. Angelio to theu. It's the gospel of God It natively, essentially, is relevant. And so when people say to me today, as occasionally they do say, you know, Ian, we live in a world where, where preaching is, is passe, we're, we're past that. We need to think of novel, new, creative methods for communicating the gospel. My response is always simply this. You have never heard preaching in your life if you think that. And the response is always bewilderment. Ian, I hear preaching every single Sunday in life. And my response is always the same. What you think is preaching is not what the Bible calls preaching. You hear homilies, you hear discourses, but you do not hear God speak through His Word by the power of His Spirit, convincing, convicting, converting, when you hear preaching, it electrifies your soul because God the Lord speaks. It's very striking that on a number of occasions today we've had Romans chapter 10 from verse 14 read to us. But often what we read is not quite the Greek that Paul actually writes. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe him? Not in him, but how are they to believe him, not of whom, but whom they have never heard? It is Christ who is speaking. When God's word is read. And remember, Paul commanded Timothy to give careful attention, the verb prosecho, to, to be addicted to the public reading of Scripture. 
because the Word of God is living and powerful. It is to be read in humble dependence on the Holy Spirit. It is to be read according to the contours of its nature and its character. It's to be read with, with feeling. It's to be read with theological insight. And it is to be proclaimed because it is God making His appeal through us. I believe more than ever today we need to recover the conviction that there is nothing more irresistible than truth to proclaim the cause of truth. There is nothing more irresistible than truth to proclaim the cause of truth. Let me highlight three foundational biblical truths that will give direction and shape to these next 41 minutes, 35 seconds that has been allotted to me. (laughs) Three foundational truths, and then we will segue into the subject that I have been asked to consider this evening. Number one, the church exists to worship God in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. Worship is our first preeminent priority. And in the Bible, worship is preeminently a corporate, covenantal, Lord's Day activity, where the triune God is worshipped and where pastors teach and shepherd God's flock. The church exists to worship God. Secondly, the church exists to go and make disciples. And why are we to go and make disciples? That God might be worshipped. He is the goal of mission, the glory of the Son, the exaltation of the Son, the cosmic preeminence in the new creation over all things. Jesus Christ, He is the goal of mission. And the third simple basic truth is that the church is called to suffer for Christ. Suffering for the sake of the Lord Jesus is not a missionary's calling. It's the calling of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we do not suffer with Him, we shall not reign with Him. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 17, that we are heirs together with Christ, joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may then be glorified with Him. So, with these three foundational truths, hopefully in the forefront of our minds, let me begin to try and at least address the subject that's been allotted to me this evening. Let me begin by taking you to the year 1805. It was a remarkable year for two reasons. As you all would know, Admiral Lord Nelson defeated the Emperor Napoleon's French fleet at Trafalgar, transforming the balance of power in Western Europe. France, from then on, was limping and then was utterly overwhelmed and defeated by the British and its allies. Napoleon's downfall really began in 1805 in the Battle of Trafalgar. But in that same year, something far more significant was happening in the town of Serampore in India. Three English Calvinistic Baptist missionaries drew up what they called the Serampore Form of Agreement. The three men, William Carey, Joshua Marshman, and William Ward, had worked together for over 10 years in India. They had partnered in pioneering Bible translation in evangelism, in church planting, and in social reform. And with six other missionaries, they they came together to highlight 11 great principles to explain their commitments and aims 
as missionaries of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would that we had the time to reflect on the 11, but let me mention five of them. They wanted the Christian world to understand what it meant to engage in the great commission given to the church by its king and head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me mention five of the 11. Number one, missionaries must be men and women of compassion and urgency. The form of agreement lays out three principles regarding the missionary's view of and approach to evangelism. Let me just highlight the first of these three. It is, to quote the agreement, absolutely necessary that missionaries set an infinite value upon immortal souls. They should, quote, often endeavor to affect their minds with the dreadful loss sustained by an unconverted soul launched into eternity. And they remind readers that just as God in the past had raised the brutalized Britons to sit in the heavenly places with Christ, so he is able likewise to convert the souls of Indians steeped in superstition and brutal practices like widow burning. He is able to raise them up and to seat them as he seated the sottish, brutalized Britons to sit in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. This very first principle shaped everything about these early missionaries. They were compelled by compassion for the lost. They would regularly reflect on those words we read in Matthew 9, verse 36, when the Lord Jesus Christ saw the multitudes, he was filled with compassion. It's very difficult to, to adequately translate his whole inmost being convulsed with pity. It's as if he physically shook as he beheld the prospect of immortal souls lost without hope and without God. And so he pleaded, pray the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest, his whole inmost being. He wasn't theologically persuaded, though he was, of course, that. He was emotively, deeply, pervasively persuaded that people without him were lost. And so, the Serampur three and these other six who joined with them said missionaries must be men and women of compassion and urgency. We need to begin by the grace of God to see people as he sees them. Now, I don't know most of you, but I'm not sure there's a day I don't bewail before God how cold my heart can be to the lost around me, and how much we need the Lord to invade our hearts that some drops of His compassion might fall upon us, that we might begin to begin in some small way to see people as He, the living God, sees them. Secondly, they said missionaries must be men and women committed to language learning. This is a very striking feature of the document. They say it is a missionary's bounden duty to learn the languages of the people he or she aims to evangelize and disciple. Now, let me tell you this about these men. They were passionate supernaturalists. 
To quote Benjamin Warfield's wonderful phrase, they were unembarrassed supernaturalists. They believed in the God who could part seas. They believed in a God who could do great and glorious and mighty works. But they knew that God's ordinary way to work was to take the ordinary things of life and to give his people to those ordinary things of life and to commit themselves to learning. They were supernaturalists, but they understood that just as the Lord Jesus Christ was not excused the maturative, educative processes of learning, so they were to give themselves hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after year, month after month, year after year, William Carey ended up knowing 19 Indian dialects. Now, he was exceptional. He was unusual. But they understood that God ordinarily blesses those who give themselves heart and soul to the language learning necessary so that the gospel may come in words and in ideas and in shapes and forms and styles and nuances that would resonate with their hearers. I wonder how seriously we take the, the holy humanity of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the third servant song in Isaiah 50, is it verse 4, we're told, morning by morning, he wakens my ear to hear as one who is taught. How did the Lord Jesus Christ come to know the Scripture so well? How did he know when Satan tempts him in the wilderness? three times. How does he know to go to the book of Deuteronomy, once to chapter 8, twice to chapter 6? He doesn't have a concordance in his back pocket. He doesn't have a copy of the Torah. Morning by morning, it's not as if there was some channel between the deity and invading the humanity. Then he would disqualify himself from being our Savior. He would be a superman and not simply the man, the last Adam, the second man who would stand before God as our covenant head in our place. He was not excused the educative labor. He had to learn the Son of God in our flesh had to sweat drops of sweat and blood to learn. And these men saying, if we're going to be men and women seriously engaged in the mission which is the passion of the holy triune God, we need to be committed to learning to learning the languages of the people. And then thirdly, they said, missionaries must be men and women who can die to their own culture. Now, these early English Baptist missionaries knew that the Indians to which they had gone perceived them and other Europeans as barbarians especially when they behaved in a manner ignorant of local customs and the worldview that prevailed. And the document states, to quote, it is therefore very important to learn everything possible about Indian modes of thinking, their habits, their propensities, their antipathies, the way in which they reason about God, sin, holiness, the way of salvation, and a future state. And brothers and sisters, that doesn't happen overnight. You don't wake up in the morning having been blessed by some remarkable blessing through the night, fully equipped and able to engage with the, the thought forms, the, the modes of expression the way of, of thinking, the worldview that prevails amongst the people to, to whom God has sent you, it, it takes labor. It takes effort, not just to, to learn the language, but to die to your own culture that you might enter into the culture 
to which God has sent you in his grace and by his Spirit. A fourth thing they emphasized in the form was that missionaries must be men and women committed to gathering converts into faithful indigenous churches. The document's very striking. Please, you, you can find it on the internet, the Serampore Form of Agreement, 1805. And the document addresses discipling converts, forming new congregations, making clear that the missionary's job involves more than mere evangelism, culture learning, and cross-cultural friendship. It's about seeing communities of faith birthed by God, born of God, planted by God, becoming fellowships where pastors, elders, and deacons care for, shepherd, teach, lead those whom God has, has brought to himself. They write in the document, we think it our duty as soon as possible to advise the native brethren who may be formed into separate churches to choose their pastors and deacons from among their own countrymen that the word may be statedly preached and the ordinances of Christ administered in each church by the native minister as much as possible without the interference of the missionary by which means the inhabitants will be more readily able to identify the cause as belonging to their own nation and their prejudices at falling into the hands of Europeans will entirely vanish. The long-range goal was actually very simple. Indian churches of permanent establishment was the language they used that would survive and thrive after the missionary efforts of Europeans had failed or had become no longer necessary. God's command was to go make disciples, baptizing them into the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Christ had commanded them. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Theologically explicating that, they were to go and to plant local churches that would be communities of faith that would themselves replicate themselves. Yes, they wanted to see converts, of course, but in the Bible, when someone is brought into union with Christ, they're brought into union and fellowship with the people of Christ. Just as in the New Testament, there is no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. I don't mean you need to be baptized to be a Christian, but I mean in the New Testament, you would never be recognized as a Christian if you were not baptized and belonging visibly to a local community of faith, they took that seriously. And brothers and sisters, that doesn't just happen. That happens most often, ordinarily, after years of blood, sweat, and tears. And then fifthly, they said missionaries must be men and women committed to sacrifice. The form of agreement states the need for missionaries' personal sacrifice and holiness. They write prayerfulness and the cultivation of personal religion are what make missionaries fit for the unalterably important labors needed for the planting of gospel churches. And they say, 
from their own experience that this will be costly. This will be costly. You know, there was a saying in the early centuries of the church that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. We've lived so long with affluence and comfort in the Western world, here especially, and in my own country. We live such comfortable lives that we, we think the cost is when someone says something unkind about us or accuses us of being narrow-minded, and we think, oh, I'm suffering for Christ. When the Lord Jesus Christ said, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple, I'll tell you what he wasn't saying. He wasn't saying, unless you're willing to, to bear the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, unless you're willing to endure the catcalls of the culture, you can't be my disciple. He was saying this, if you're not ready to die, don't follow me. Don't follow me. And that makes us ask, surely, the question, is it worth it? Is it, is it worth it? No. But He is worth it. He is worth it because of who He is, because of what He's done, because of what He's presently doing, and because of what He will yet one day do. He is worth it. And so they say as they come to the conclusion of their form of agreement, let us give ourselves up unreservedly to this glorious cause let us never think that our time, our gifts, our strength, our families, or even the clothes we wear are our own. Let us sanctify them all to God and His cause. Brothers and sisters, there isn't one thing you have that belongs to you that it wasn't one item of clothing that you're wearing, one personal possession that you have. There is nothing you have that's your own. Everything you have, you have by the good pleasure of the Lord that you might use what He has given you for His glory, for His glory. And so what we can learn from the history of, of Christian missions is that those who have gone before us were men and women steeped in Holy Scripture. Why, why did they say these things? They were not speaking out of their own thinking as to what Christian mission would be or should be. They, they, they were reflecting what they read in Holy Scripture. They understood that the call of God was a call not simply to go, it was a call to go and die. It was a call to go and to die, but in dying to live, because unless a corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies, John 12, it abides alone, but if it dies, and that death can take many forms, many, many forms. It can take the ultimate form, but it can take many other forms, dying to what people hope for you, what your parents expect of you, what your abilities and gifts hold out in prospect for you. I can't quite remember who said it, but someone once said significantly, don't stoop to take a crown when God calls you to be a missionary. 
And it's in the light of that that we need to reflect on modern mission. It would be easy for me to stand here and to list what I think are some of the many major inconsistencies, failings, even tragedies that are passing for mission in the name of Jesus Christ. And the danger is you can become arrogantly proud, censorious. But we need to be faithful to God's Word. We need to recognize that there are dangers that we must avoid with all our hearts, with all our minds, dangers that can so easily creep in upon us unbeknown. You know, when you live in the atmosphere of a culture, you, you cannot help but imbibe the atmosphere in some way. And that's why the Scriptures are always impressing on us to crystallize it in one text, Romans eight thirteen: put to death what is earthly in you. We don't do that by one significant moment of consecration, but every day, every week, every month, every year, we are to die, we're to put to death what is earthly in us. As the Spirit helps us, we are to recognize the, the temptations, the dangers that so easily beset us, and we're all particularly prone in one way or another to a multitude, the multitudinous hydra of Satan's wiles. And by the Spirit, we need to put to death what is earthly in us. And this is true, I think, in the area of, of modern mission. And Radius International needs to be alert to these dangers. Let me simply mention um, three or four, perhaps, as, as we close. I think perhaps the greatest danger that faces modern mission is the danger of replacing the wisdom of God's Word with good ideas that are more often cultural than biblical. Replacing the wisdom of God's Word with good ideas. We see it, I think, in the area of worship, which is the great calling of the church. The thought that our worship should be shaped and styled and patterned according to the Word of God would seem bizarre to many. But if God has not commanded it, are we free to do it? And it's the same in mission. God has not le left us with a blank slate to, to fill in. He, he's told us by word and by pattern and by example how he would have his church go about the great work of making known Jesus Christ to the nations. But so often today, I think, God's transgenerationally true word is confessed, but in terms of practice, often ignored. Brothers and sisters, why should our understanding of mission not be as biblically informed and shaped as our understanding of salvation and worship? That's why I read those verses in 2 Corinthians. We are not like so many, says Paul. I'm haunted by those words. I don't know how often I've read those words, literally hundreds of times. I keep coming back to them. We are not, Paul is speaking of the visible church as he saw it in his own day. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word. And he uses a very striking verb, capo adulterators. It, it's a word that described innkeepers who would water down beer to make a profit. They were in it for what they could get out of it. 
And Paul says, we're not in the business of watering down the Word of God. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul himself was conscious in his own time that there were so many around him. And no doubt, as the Corinthians, this is the back story to the first and second letter to the Corinthians, as many of you will know, there were false apostles, deceitful uh, workmen who, who were saying of Paul, you know, he's not making much of an impact. He doesn't have the, the pizzazz, the, the, the character, the persona of, of these other teachers. He's, his bodily presence is weak. His speech is contemptible. And Paul says, we're not peddlers. We're not adulterators. These are great words. We are men of sincerity. as commissioned by God. You see, David Wells was so right. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is God rests too inconsequentially on His church. We have light views of God. We're to worship Him with reverence and awe, not with cartwheels. He is the high and the holy one who inhabits eternity. I don't mean our worship is to be grim, but I mean it's to pulse with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. And the danger, I think, in modern mission because of the desire, and it's a good desire, it's a righteous desire to, to win people, is that we replace principle with pragmatism. We, we so want the gospel to succeed. We want to be able to say, let me tell you about the numbers who came to Christ last week, last month, last year. C.S. Lewis wrote very strikingly, fads and fashions come and go but they mainly go. <laughs> My brother pastors especially hold fast. Maybe the church down the road is gathering them in by the droves. Well, bless God for that. Look to be faithful. Look to have God's Word shape and style and direct and inform all that you do and leave Him to build His church. Secondly, there's the danger of developing an unbiblical understanding of the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said in the introduction, the Lord does what He does. He can work in extraordinary ways. When, when you read the Bible, that there are, if you read the Bible carefully, there are four significant, momentous moments in the history of redemption where, in terms of the advance of redemptive revelation, God acts in singularly remarkable ways. But ordinarily, ordinarily, God works in unspectacular ways. Now, the Lord once used a donkey to convey truth, but we don't specialize in training donkeys at Greenville Presbyterian Seminary. We don't. We don't deny that the Lord can work in extraordinary ways. Of course we don't. He is God. Never put God in a box. But the DNA of Christian mission and Christian ministry is this, no gains without pains. That's J.C. Ryle. That's the ordinary DNA of Holy Scripture. No gains without pains. 
No progress without preparation. As I said, the Lord can do extraordinary things. But most often, He chooses to work through the disciplined, sacrificial devotion of His servants. The Holy Spirit was given to our Lord Jesus without measure. John 3.34, isn't it? Without measure. But he wasn't excused, as I said earlier, the discipline of preparation and maturation. Morning by morning, he wakens my ear to hear. Now, it's quite possible the Lord Jesus Christ had memorized the whole of what we call, I don't like calling it the Old Testament, it's the Bible, it's the one Bible. If you'd ask the Lord Jesus, are you quoting from the Old Testament? You wouldn't know what you were talking about. It's the Holy Scriptures. It's quite po- it, wasn't, it wasn't wholly unusual for able rabbis to have memorized the whole thing. Genesis 1.1, Bereshit, Barai, Elohim, Hashemayim, Va'at, Ha'aretz, Tohu, Wabo. From there, right through to end of Second Chronicles, the way that the Hebrew canon is composed. We don't know, but quite possibly he did. He wasn't excused the discipline of day by day hearing the word, going to the synagogue, and hiding that word in his heart that he might not sin against God. A few months ago, Sinclair Ferguson phoned me and we were chatting, and he said, um, I've mentioned this to a few of you, he said, have you read the biography of George Lawson? Lawson was a late 18th century Scottish Presbyterian. I said, no, I haven't. Um, he said, listen to this. One day, one of Lawson's parishioners said to him, Dr. Lawson, if they take away our Bibles, this was the age of the Enlightenment, the age of reason. Scotland was at the forefront of the European Enlightenment. If they take away our Bibles, what will we do? And Lawson replied, well, I think from memory I can write down the whole Bible, but I'm not sure I'll get the Proverbs in the right order. (laughs) Do you know why that stung me? Earlier that day, I'd been walking, and I thought to myself, Ian, start reciting Paul's letter to the Romans, see how much you can remember. And I, I started in, in Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle, Paulos, Doulos, Cletus, Apostolos, Aphorismos, to you, Evangelio, to Theo, and you go on and on. And I, I got to there, I thought, well, that's quite good here. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't get it all, but I thought, well, that's, that's pretty good. There was George Lawson. God doesn't excuse his people the necessity of application, of giving ourselves seriously. It's one of the ways the Lord sanctifies us, and it's one of the ways the Lord proves us and shows us how sad we really are at living the Christian life. The Lord Jesus was given the Spirit without measure, but not excused the daily discipline of preparation and maturation. And the third thing, I'll just leave it with three. It's the daily, the danger of failing to understand that the establishing of churches is the biblical goal of mission. Worshiping communities of faith. What is a church? Well, I'll tell you what a church isn't. A church isn't a gathering of two or three people with a man of peace. That's not a church. I'm not sure what it is, but it's not a church. A church is a community of saved, baptized sinners, worshiping God in spirit and truth, taught and cared for by pastors, elders, and deacons, reaching out from where they are to the lost, a people for whom mission is a command and not a suggestion. That's a church. 
And that is not imposing Western, culturally white ideas on people from other cultures. It's taking the trans-cultural truth of God's Eastern, non-white, Semitic word to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, Western is not per se a bad word. The bottom line is that God's wisdom is to be preferred to the ideas and imaginations of mere men, however well-intentioned. I often think of the words we read in Isaiah 8, isn't it, verse 20, to the law and the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Our calling is to believe what God has spoken and to live out what God has spoken. To resist the temptation to imbibe in any way whatsoever the fads and fashions that come and go. That's easier said than done. That is much easier said than done. But our primary calling is to honor our God. And those who honor me, he said, I will honor. So what can we learn from the history of missions? We can learn that it's costly to be a servant of the crucified Christ. But to have the smile of God on your life is worth every cost. He is worth it. He is worth it. He is worth it.